Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 14 and 15, and, and I called this stuck between a rock and a hard place. And as we go into this, I think you'll understand why I gave it that title. But verse uh, 1 of chapter 14, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihiroth, however you pronounce that, uh, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp by it, uh, excuse me, camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. I'm really struggling with that this morning. The name literally means a place where the sedge grows. And uh, it's also known as the mouth of the gorges. Now, I don't know exactly what a sedge was, so I had to look that up. And it's a collection of rush-like marsh plants uh, that sea or marsh birds use as a nesting place. So what does that mean? I don't really know. Uh, but Migdal, we do know that that means tower, and it was, we do know that it was a fortified city on the Egyptian border. And so this place, and I don't know that anybody really knows exactly where this place is, although if you go on the internet, everybody knows everything about it. But um, it, it evidently was a narrow passage uh, with steep hills on both sides that opened up to the Red Sea. So the children of Israel, the Lord God is telling the children of Israel to go to this location that there's one passage in, they've got hills on both sides, and there's the, the sea, uh, the Red Sea right in front of them. And, uh, you know, it, it'd probably be a great place to camp if you were, if that's what you're into. We love camping by the ocean when we lived in California and stuff. Uh, but when you're, uh, you know, and maybe at that point they didn't realize it, but you know, once you're getting chased by an army, that's probably not the best place to be because you're boxed in, basically. And so what's interesting about this is that the Lord purposely led the children of Israel. And then, not only that, did he lead them to that spot, but he also tells Moses the reason why. He says, for Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, the wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So the Lord is purposely bringing them into this place. They're going to appear vulnerable to the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians come after them, as we'll see uh, in the next few verses here, the children of Israel are going to be in this uncomfortable position of being boxed in, in this location where they're camping, uh, where the only way out is cut off by the enemy. That's a seemingly hopeless situation. And, the, and so, in literally, they are stuck between a rock and a hard place at this location. And uh, they're trapped with no way out. And I was thinking about that. You know, have you ever felt like that? Maybe you're not, not in a physical location where you're, where you're camped and you're trapped, but in our life where you, something happens and you feel like there's no good options in your life and you feel like you're stuck and there's no way out and everything seems hopeless. Well, what do you do when you're in a situation like that? What do you do when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place? And I think we're going to see some things in these in the scriptures here that'll give us some some things that we can think about, some things that we can put into practice. And the very first thing to do, I think, when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, is found right in these first four verses. 
It says that the Lord, in his mercy, he told Moses beforehand what he was going to do and why he was going to do it. He was going to use the children of Israel's seemingly hopeless situation to reveal his glory and lordship to Egypt. Now that's God in his mercy sharing that with Moses, but God doesn't always do that. When Joseph went to Egypt, Joseph, you know, he went as a slave. He went into, in, a, in a prison and, and, and God didn't reveal to Joseph, hey, Joseph, I'm sending you. You're going to be a slave, but don't worry about it. You're going to be in prison. Don't worry about it. I've got a great plan for you. He didn't, he didn't give him those details. And I've found in my own life, in my own experiences, sometimes the Lord will, something will happen and, and it's like the Lord doesn't tell me, well, I'm doing this in your life because of this. You know, he doesn't tell me that. And he probably doesn't tell you either. You're still, it's still, what, what do you do? You're stuck in a situation like that. You have no idea why the Lord is allowing you to be trapped in a circumstance and you're out, it's out of your control. It's like, I can't do anything. I feel like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. But one thing we need to remember just because he doesn't reveal, just because the Lord doesn't reveal why we're going through something, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a purpose in it. And in this case, he told Moses what he was doing. So I think the first thing that we can see in these first few, verse, first few verses, uh, when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, the first thing to do is to understand this, that God is in control. Whether he tells you this is why I'm doing it or not, God's in control even if you have no clue why. And quite honestly, frequently, I don't have a clue why. But I always remember, you know what? I know God's in control. I know he's in control. Verse 5, Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. So now the heart of Pharaoh and his servants, you know, they had these slaves that did everything. They did all the dirty work for him. And, and before they left Egypt, the people had gained favor with the people of Egypt and, uh, and with Pharaoh's servants. Um, but that window, there was a window that was open, but now it's closed. That window that was open, remember back in uh, Exodus 11, verse 3, you don't need to turn there, but it tells us there that the Lord gave the children of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. It even says that Moses was very great in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. In Exodus 12, verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. In fact, even when Pharaoh drove the children of Israel out of Egypt there in chapter 12, verse 31 through 32, Pharaoh even himself says to Moses, bless me also. So in that little window of time, the children of Israel had favor with the Egyptians. And in fact, even with Pharaoh to some extent. You know, when at the end of World War II, when, uh, when the... the, uh, the uh, the death camps that the that the Nazis, you know, kept all the Jews, you know, exterminating Jews. They were murdering Jews. The death camps. When those at the end of the war, you know, there were people that were living around in, in Germany and in Poland and different places. They had no idea what was going. Well, supposedly they had no idea what was going on in place during those places. And so at the end of the war, the Allied forces they made some of those people go through and look and see what was, hey, this is what was happening right in your backyard. And when the world saw the pictures that came out of that, there was a window opened where 
at, at, for a small period of time, the world had compassion on the Jewish people. And, and I think the Lord used that little window of time, that little window of compassion to enable the children of Israel, enable the, the, the Hebrews, the Jews, to be able to establish a nation state, the nation state of Israel. That window's closed, by the way. In fact, it, it was, you know, it's, it, that window was open for just a short period of time, and now it's closed. Well, for the children of Israel, it's the same story. Now, in this story here, they, there's this little window of, of, of favor that was opened, and as soon as they got out of Egypt, man, boom, the window shut. And now Pharaoh is like, what did we do? What were we thinking? And now he wants to go back and get the children of Israel and bring them back into bondage in Egypt. And look at Pharaoh's military might. It says that he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. Those 600 choice chariots, those were special ones. They were like the, the special, you know, the, 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 the top secret weapons that, uh, that Egypt would have had in those days. They were basically uh, chariots that were driven by two horses. They contained two warriors. One of them was bearing a shield and, and driving the, the chariot. And then there was another guy on the chariot that was fully armed. And he was the one that was you know, doing the battle, basically. He was free to just fight. So that's Pharaoh's military might. The children of Israel, now we know in Numbers chapter 26, that after, shortly after, in fact, two years, I think it was like two years after they came out of, Egypt, out of Egypt, that the Lord told Moses, I want you to take a census of the people of Israel. Every male from 20 years old and above who is able to go to war. And the results of the census was 603,550 males, 20 years old and above. Now, the Egyptians... It says here that they had 600 choice chariots, but it also says, and all the other chariots in Egypt with captains over every one of them. So it was more than 600. This was just 600 of the special ones. Now there's a bunch of others. And so this whole army of warriors with horses, with chariots, I mean, that's, that's like the top weapons in that culture, in that, in that day and age. Um, they're going after the children of Israel. Now you think about the children of Israel, okay, 603,550 men who are able to go on war, but guess what, they're on foot, they're not on horses, they don't have any weapons, at least not that we know of, and they also have women and children and senior people with them, and so it's not like this is a fighting force ready to do battle, these are former slaves, in fact, some of them, in fact, all of them, their whole generation, all they had known was slavery and servitude. They were not trained warriors, and they certainly didn't feel like warriors. And so you look at this, this army coming after these vulnerable slaves. And yet, I find this fascinating. This, every time I've been reading in Exodus, as we've been going through, the, this one phrase kept coming back, kept coming back. I'm like, why is that in there? And now I think I see it, why? Back in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord's talking to Moses and he says, But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And there's five times up until this chapter where the Lord calls the children of Israel his armies, and yet they're slaves. They're not armies, they're not warriors, they're slaves. But you see, I think that's an important thing. 
the important thing is here, God, you know, the Lord doesn't see them as slaves. He sees them as his armies. And I think that's such an important point. God sees us not as we are now, but what we will be. God looks beyond our, you know, we look at our situation. And the children of Israel, you know, think about a slave. They're basically the weakest because they're slaves. Otherwise, if they weren't weak, they probably wouldn't be slaves. They're the weakest class of people in that culture, the lowest class of people in that culture. And they probably, and, and the Egyptians consider them that way, and they themselves probably consider themselves that way, but the Lord doesn't. The Lord calls them his armies. And that, that just fascinates me. That's because God sees us not as we are now, but what we will be. Verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness, so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside that place that we mentioned before, uh, before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. It says there in verse... Um, Eight, that they went out with boldness. What does that mean? Well, if you have a King James Version, it means with a high hand. And, and basically what it means, they went out exalted. They went out, they didn't go out in shame and timidity. They went out and the Targum says that they went out with an uncovered head. It, you know, they didn't, it wasn't like they snuck out of Egypt. They went out in boldness with a high hand. In fact, Paul even mentions this in Acts 13, verse 7. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. With an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. So they had left Egypt with their heads lifted high, and they had favor with the people of, of, of Egypt. But now, it's a totally different story. So the children of Israel, they see, maybe they see the dust clouds of the chariots coming their way, whatever, and they cried out to the Lord. Now, that's a good thing, right? When you're in a, when you're in a bind, you, you know, something happens, the best thing you can do is to cry out to the Lord. So that's good. After all, Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But they go from calling out to the Lord to blaming Moses for getting them into this predicament. And fear will do that. Fear will cause people to grumble and complain. Fear caused them to grumble and complain against Moses, and ultimately it's against God. But right now, Moses is the focus of it. They would rather be slaves back in Egypt, but alive, than between a rock and a hard place, fearing for their lives in the wilderness. It's an uncomfortable place to be. Who would want to be in that place? You know, before you and I condemn them. And, you know, as we go through, and I've read through the Exodus many times. You probably have too. It's like, oh, they're grumbling and complaining again. Don't they ever get it? I sure wouldn't do that. Well, no, I probably would. 
Before we condemn them, think about this. They're physically hemmed in. Their only way of escape has now been closed off, and they got an angry army coming at them. How would you feel? <laughs> I know how I'd feel. <laughs> Panic. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your, pl your, place, your peace. Excuse me. So the first thing we're, we should do when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place is to understand that God's in control. Whether he's revealed that to you or not, trust that God is in control. The second thing to do is to don't fear. Of course, that's an easy thing to say, right? But that's true. Uh, don't fear. Remember, go back to point one. God's in control. Um, and then not only that, but remember his past faithfulness. You know, for many of us, maybe even today, you're, you feel like, it's like well, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm like the children of Israel. I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Or maybe that's happened to you in the past. It's not the first time, right? And you might go, well, yeah, but this time it's different. What I'm going through right now, it's, it's different than what I've ever gone through before. Well, the circumstance may be different. I'll grant that. But listen, how did God deliver you the last time? Did God deliver you the last time? Has God changed? All the children of Israel needed to do was to look back just the past year to see God's past faithfulness to him, to them. But you see, fear causes us to forget those things. When something's in front of you, that's all you can see. Fear causes you to forget. And the children of Israel need to remember God's mighty deliverances from Egypt. Remember all those plagues that God brought upon the, the people of Egypt. Most of those plagues, the Lord spared the children of Israel from in the land of Goshen. He spared them, and he was making a distinction between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. But some of them, as we studied, some of them, they actually did endure with the Egyptians, uh, some of those plagues. But even though they did go through some of those things, the Lord sustained them through those things. They just needed to remember them, remember that. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. And this is what I want to point out. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Has God changed? The answer is no, God has not changed. You can trust in God through every situation you go through. You can trust in God forever because God is everlastingly, he, he's faithful forever and he always will be faithful. So first, remember that God's in control. Second thing, don't fear. Here's the third thing to do when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I, I love this verse, Lamentations 3, verses 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good to just wait for him. Isaiah 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. He's not going to let you down if you're waiting for him. We even see that in the story of Ruth. 
And you guys know the story of Ruth, right? In, 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 in uh, Ruth chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi, she's, she's uh, uh, before Boaz. Boaz is her kinsman redeemer. And uh, she spends the night, not with him, but it's, I don't want to get it, because you think of something weird, but next to him in, this, in the silo as he's you know, collected all this grain for the, for the season. And there's a whole story in behind, between that. But, but Boaz blesses her with all this grain, because her and Naomi, they're basically destitute. And so he gives her all this grain. She goes back and she brings it to Naomi. And uh, Naomi says, well, what happened? And she tells him the story. Well, this man named Boaz, he gave me all this stuff. And, and, and Naomi says to Ruth, she says, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Just take it easy. Just sit still and wait and see what happens. And you guys know the story. The Lord, it was a beautiful story in the book of Ruth. But you know, when you and I are fearing things, there's a temptation. There's a temptation to retreat, to go back. I don't like this uncomfortable position in. I want to get out of here. I want to go back to the way things were before. That's exactly what Israel, the children of Israel, is, is saying right here. I want to go back to Egypt. At least, at least we were alive. We didn't have, they weren't angry at us, you know, which they were, but, you know, fear can cause you to forget certain things. But for us, the temptation is to retreat when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. We don't like to be stretched in our faith. I don't like to be stretched in my faith. It's uncomfortable to be stretched in our faith. And so don't retreat in fear. Don't retreat. Don't go back. Don't, don't try to go back to the way things were before. With fear, there's a temptation also to respond immediately. You know, that waiting is the hardest thing to do. We want to do something now. I got to do something. So we do something, right? Uh, don't react in haste when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And with fear, there's also a temptation to do, to like, I got to figure out how I'm going to get out of this. And we got to try to extricate ourselves out of it. We find our own way out from between the rock and the hard place. Think of the children of Israel. What could they have done? Well, quick, let's jump into the sea. Well, the water hasn't parted yet. You know, it's not a good idea to do that right now. Uh, well, we could climb these hills. Well, yeah, maybe the youngest and the strongest could, but what about the little children? What about the senior adults? What about all the other people? What about all your livestock and everything? Uh, that's not a realistic thing either. Don't rely on yourself. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. So consider Moses now. I want to just take a moment to just take a look at Moses, right? The Lord's revealed to him, right, what's, what's going on, at least to some extent. And so Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. For the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now, he's not been told how the Lord's going to deliver them. He's only been told that the Lord will deliver them. And so, Moses, man, what a man of faith here. Hey, God's going to deliver you. Just stand here. You're not going to see those Egyptians anymore to, after today. But notice verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now, I, I want to just share something with you as a pastor. Uh, I can totally identify with Moses in this situation right now with what he's doing. Because as a pastor, you know, someone come up to you and they, their life is falling apart. And you're, and you're listening to it and, you're, and you know, you're the pastor, right? You, go, you know what? God's in control. Don't just trust him, you know. You've got to have the answer, right? 
Meanwhile, so that's the public response. You're trusting God. Meanwhile, I'm like, Lord God, I don't even know what to say. Lord, this, that's impossible. I, I kind of feel like that's what Moses is doing here. He's got this public thing. Hey, trust the Lord. Lord's going to deliver you. But behind the scenes, he's like, he's crying out, Lord, you got to do something. The Egyptians, they are almost upon us right now. And the Lord says, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. You see, fear can also paralyze us. The time for praying and seeking the Lord has ended. The time for waiting on the Lord. Now he's going to tell them what to do. Now is the time for them to take action and to be obedient to what he shows them. But the temptation, again, fear paralyzes us sometimes. But this is the point right in this story and for us, when we're paralyzed, this is, this is where faith is stretched the most. It's that stepping out in obedience. But that's where the growth in faith occurs. So the fourth thing to do when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place is to go forward. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop the bus here. <laughs> Earlier you said stand still. Don't retreat in fear. Don't react in haste. Don't rely on yourself. Now you're saying go forward. Yeah. Because don't let fear also paralyze you. You guys have heard that phrase before, the paralysis of analysis. You know, uh, let me put it in Christianese. It's called, I'm waiting on the Lord. And I'm waiting on the Lord. Every time you see him, you go, oh, I'm waiting on the Lord. It's good to wait on the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But there comes a point where the Lord speaks to you. And when he speaks to you, then it's like, okay, now, now take this step of faith and do this. That's the tough thing. So here's a, here's a phrase that I just want you to remember. Pray, then obey. Pray until the Lord reveals you what you should do, and then obey. Take that step of obedience. And so that's what the Lord told uh, Moses. Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Verse 16, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Again, the purpose for the children of Israel being delivered from between this rock and a hard place is not just for them. He's going to deliver them, uh, and it's not just for their faith in God, but it's also to show the pagan world around them how the Lord is going to deliver his people. Sometimes when we're going through something, you know, the Lord is, he's got, he's God, you know, and he's got manifold purposes. And yeah, we're part of that purpose we're you know he's got a plan and a purpose for us through what we're going through but it's not always just about us it could also be about the people around us that the lord is trying to show look look what i'll do to my child look you know look how i'm going to deliver them when 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 you can have that peace even in the midst of the worst storm and people go i don't understand that well it's the peace that the holy spirit gives you when he's you know dwelling inside of us Verse 19, and the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. 
So that cloud that led them by night and fire, uh, the cloud and that led them by day and the fire that led them by night, it was the presence of the angel of God. And I believe that's the pre-incarnate, you know, it was Jesus Christ. He'll also be the rock that follows them in the wilderness. We'll get to that when we, when we get to that portion of scripture. So the cloud was leading them forward and it goes from leading them forward to coming behind them to protect them from Pharaoh's armies. That same presence of the Lord for the children of Israel, for the children of God on the one side, it's providing illumination because this is nighttime now. It's prov providing illumination and protection for them to go through and cross on dry ground. For the enemies, it's darkness and approaching a sign of approaching judgment. You know, the leading of the Lord in our lives, it guides us, but it doesn't always just guide us where we should go. It also spares us from harm. I'll, I'll, I'm going to share this story. I didn't tell Teresa I was going to share this, but uh, a number of years ago, she went to a pastor's wives conference in, in uh, Illinois, and she was driving back on, on the turnpike there in Interstate 80, I think it was. And uh, anyways, or actually it was 90, but... Uh, she, was, she had her cruise control set to a certain speed and she was just going along and, and she sensed that the Lord was laying on her, her heart, slow down by five miles per hour, right? three miles per hour. It's like, well, that's kind of weird. But she felt, well, the Lord wants me to slow down by three miles per hour. So she, so she did. She reduced her speed on her, on her thing. And it wasn't too far down the road that there was a, she just, an accident had just happened. And, and it was a bad accident, right? And, and it, she did the calculations, like if I had been still going three miles faster, I would have been right in the midst of that accident. And it was the Lord clearly, it wasn't just, you know, I want you to go slower. It, it was to spare her from harm. And the Lord does that. His leading, it's not just to guide us, but it's also to spare us from harm. And so the Lord here, that, that leading is also protecting them. And the Lord does that in our lives as well. Verse 21 then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, a lot of people struggle with that. A lot of liberal theologians, they look for a natural explanation. There's got to be something that we can explain this away. And, and I came across this one explanation. Moses was familiar with the area in the wilderness, and he knew where he could cross the Red Sea at low tide. <laughs> That's, it's like, come on, give me a break. The scripture says that there was a, a water, the waters was a wall. Now, I don't, I don't know how to describe that other than what the scripture says. It was a wall on both sides. And when those walls collapsed, the Egyptians drowned. And I would think if the tide was coming in and going out, I think you'd have time to maybe, I mean, that's just me, but I think you'd have time to get out of that. But like so many of the plagues of Egypt, God used natural phenomena, in this case a strong east wind, but it was miraculous nonetheless. He used that strong wind to drive back the waters, and he also used that dry wind, I'm sure, to dry the seabed so that they wouldn't be going through the muck and the mire, that they'd actually be going on dry ground, as the scripture says. So God can use natural things to do the supernatural, but he doesn't have to either. Verse 23, And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, Excuse me, yeah, all this church. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon his, the army 
of the Egyptians through the pillar of cloud and uh, fire and cloud, excuse me, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So they're, they're crossing, and all of a sudden it's like their wheels are falling off, and it's like their things are falling apart there, their chariots there. And, and, and they recognize it, the, you know, Pharaoh probably doesn't, but his soldiers like, this is the hand of God, the God of Israel. He's against us. We better get out of here. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the, the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now in this story, Moses, the Lord tells Moses to stretch out his rod and his hands to part the, the Red Sea. And then later on, stretch out your hands and the rod to bring the waters back uh, over the Egyptians. But God didn't need to use Moses or his staff to do that. Just like God didn't really need to use an east wind. That's just what he chose to use. And God's, like I said earlier, God sometimes uses natural agents like wind, for example, in this, in this example. And sometimes, and quite often, he uses people. He delights in using men and women to be his agents through whom he works. He delights to use you in this world to reach a lost and a dying world around him, around us. You know, earlier the Lord said he was going to deliver uh, the children of Israel, and he, it was really to show Pharaoh and to show the Egyptians that he was Lord. But there were so many different other things that the Lord accomplished by this deliverance. By using Moses, for example, he vindicated Moses before the children of Israel. Remember earlier, they're like, Moses. They, they were accusing Moses in their fear. They were accusing Moses of having bad motives towards them. You, you brought us out here to kill us. You know, you, you know, what were you thinking and stuff? But now Moses is vindicated before the children of Israel. And the Lord has confirmed his place of leadership over them. He's also, by doing this, He's recompensed or paid back the Egyptians, in a sense, for drowning the Hebrew babies many years before. And they're paid back with interest because, you know, they drowned Hebrew babies and the Lord God is drowning ad adult Egyptian males. It's coming back like sevenfold on them. Not only that, but this story, this event that occurs... The Lord's going to use it to strike fear into the nations of the Canaanites that the children of Israel later on are going to encounter. In fact, 40 years later, not five years later, not two years later, 40 years later, Rahab the harlot, you'll know that story when, she's, when, when they come, they send some spies to Jericho. Rahab the harlot's there. 
And she tells the two spies in Joshua 2.10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Forty years later, they're still in fear and dread of the children of Israel. Not only that, but in the New Testament, we find out that this, this deliverance through the Red Sea is a picture of the believer's baptism. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So by passing through the water, in a sense, all of Israel was identified with Moses. And the picture is, for the believer, the person who... who who goes through the waters of baptism, they are identifying with Jesus Christ. That's, that's why we do water baptism, is to identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so here the Lord delivered the children of Israel once and for all from the bondage to Egypt. It's complete. What Moses said in verse 13, it came to pass. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. When the children of Israel were stuck between this rock and a hard place, they needed to understand God's in control. God had a plan for all of this. They needed to not fear. They needed to stand still and see the salvation uh, of God, and then they needed to move forward. Remember, pray, then obey. The last thing we see here, and I think this is a very important thing, is to do what Moses does. He worships the Lord after he's been delivered. I think it's such an important thing. After he has been delivered from between a rock and a hard place, this is what, for us, what we should do, what Moses did. Don't forget to respond to what the Lord has done. And that's what worship is. And so we're going to look at Exodus 15 briefly. It's known as the Song of Moses. Verse 1, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, a strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The song of Moses, and later on we'll see the song of Miriam, they're spontaneous expressions of worship in response to being delivered uh, that day. It's a response to what the Lord has done. And notice that it's a new song because the Bible tells us that the Lord's mercies and compassions are always new. He's always doing a work in our lives. Lamentations 3, 22, 23. Through, uh, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Our worship should be new because the Lord's doing a new thing always in our lives. He's always working in our lives. Psalm 40, verse 3, He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Not only that, it's personalized. It's not generalized. Look at that. It's like what, Lord, you have done to me, for me. What you are, uh, excuse me, what you have done for me and who you are to me. You see that what Moses says there. And it's directed to him there. He says, I'll sing to the Lord. Sometimes people get this wrong idea of worship that it's just, you know, it's a performance. No, it's, it's a response to what the Lord has done and who he is. And it's directed to him. It's not directed to the audience or the congregation. It's directed to the Lord. That's what worship should be. 
He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. And you know, when the Lord becomes your, your sole source of strength, he's going to become your song as well. You're just going to be worshiping him, thanking him, and praising him for all the things that he's doing. He says, and he has become my salvation. What a beautiful recognition that we can't save ourselves. We're 100% dependent on him to save us. The children of Israel, they were between a rock and a heart. There was no physical way that they could be delivered. And yet the Lord delivered them. Their salvation, in this case, was 100% the Lord's doing. It had nothing to do with them. And it's the same with us. And then this worship, the song, it rejoices on who the Lord is and what he has done. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemies in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew them with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. It's a response to what the Lord has done and who he is. And it also rejoices in what the Lord will do. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. See, the Lord had delivered them. He's going to deliver them. He's going to bring them to that promised land, to the land of Canaan. Just like for you and I. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done in my life. And Lord, I look back at your past faithfulness. Lord, you delivered me. Thank you. And I trust that you're going to deliver me more. You're going to deliver me again. You're going you're to bring me to heaven, to eternity, to spend eternity with you. And the last thing I, I see here this last portion about this worship of the Song of Moses, it's contagious. Have you ever been around somebody that's just, uh, just a joyful worshiping? It's that, that, that pure worship. It's contagious. It says, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. It was contagious. They just, Moses is worshiping the Lord. Miriam's like, man, I'm going to get in on the act. I've, I used to go to the pastor's, senior pastor's conference in, in uh, Murrieta. They'd have them once a year when Pastor Chuck Smith was still alive. And a uh, group of, I don't know how many, lots of seven, 800 pastors or so meeting in this place. And, and uh, I used to go every year pretty much. And, and uh, 
I like to kind of sit around in different places. Some people like their creatures they have. They always like to sit in one spot. I like to, to move around. Every session I was in a different spot. Kind of give you a different feel and stuff. You meet different people. But there was one person that I always wanted to sit by when it was time to worship. And I don't know if you know who Ricky Ryan is. He was a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. He went back to Hawaii. I think he's in Hawaii again. But that guy, when he started worshiping, it's like, man, I loved sitting by him. And I always wanted, I got to find where he's at because I want to sit by him. I want to worship because, man, that guy's it's just, it's contagious. And when you're worshiping the Lord and, and it's a response to what he's done and, and it's, just, it's just offered to him, it's contagious. It really is. Incidentally, just a side note, there's no charge for this, but uh, Revelation 15, verse 4, I want to read this to you. Uh, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And listen to this, they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So in Revelation chapter 14 here, or 15, excuse me, the tribulation saints who are delivered through the tribulation, they're standing on something that looks like the sea of glass, kind of like something that looks like the Red Sea, uh, mingled with fire. And like Moses and the children of Israel standing on the shore of the Red these saints are standing on the shore of the sea of glass, and they're worshiping the Lord for his deliverance through the great tribulation. Very interesting. So, we finished chapter, well, we didn't quite finish chapter 15. We're going to finish it up next week. But now, at this point, the children of Israel, this is a new phase in the book of Exodus. And a new page has turned for the children of Israel. They are no longer slaves. That's done. They will never go back to Egypt. They're no longer slaves. They're going from here on out. They're going to be fearless. They're going to be joy-filled. They're going to be worshipers fully submitted to the Lord and to Moses from here on out, right? <laughs> well, if you read the story, you know that's not necessarily the case. But we're going to look at that as we go through that. But I want to just close with this this morning. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, we want to pray for you this morning. We, I, I, we don't have the answers, although we know that God's in control. We can tell you that. Hopefully you understand that yourself this morning. But we want to pray with you and, and just pray with you and, and just seek the Lord with you. And so um, I'm going to ask Mary if she'll go in the back. And uh, while the worship is taking place here, if you need prayer for something, Mary's a prayer warrior. And uh, she's, she's this is one of her gifts. And so um, if, you, if there's something on your heart during worship and you, just, you, you really want to just have somebody come alongside to pray for you, Mary will be there for you. If we need more people, we'll have, I'm sure some of the other brothers and sisters will go back there and pray too. But we want to give you that opportunity during worship. And so if I could have the worship team come on up and then let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. And then if you need prayer, please go back there and, and there'll be somebody to pray with you. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for this uh, lesson that we've learned today. Lord, how you miraculously delivered the children of Israel from a place that, Lord, it just looked like there was no hope. And yet, Lord, you did deliver them. 
And Lord, for some of us, maybe we're in a situation right now that seems like there's no hope. It seems like there's no good options. We feel trapped in our circumstances. Lord, I pray for those that are going through that this morning, Lord, that they would, they would just be comforted in knowing that you're in control, that this hasn't caught you by surprise. Lord, that you have things in control, that there's a plan and a purpose even through this, and that, Lord God, you might be glorified through that situation, whatever it might be. And so, Lord, I thank you uh, for this lesson that we've seen today. And Lord, I, I pray that we, when we're, maybe we're not going through something today, but maybe tomorrow we're going to hear some news that's going to just rock our world. Lord, I pray that at that point that we wouldn't fear, that we wouldn't react in haste, that we wouldn't try to do things in our own strength, but that we would stand still and see your salvation and put our trust in you. And Lord, for those of us that maybe we're, we've, been, we've been praying a long time and we're going through something, and it's been a while, and Lord, if you've been speaking to our hearts, I pray that we would get up and, and go forward and walk in that faith, whatever it is that you've revealed to us, Lord, that we'd be obedient to you. So I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for these saints here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.